Dr. Dale on Quail, bringing you the latest news and views about all things quail in Texas. Brought to you by the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, preserving the wild quail hunting heritage of Texas for this and future generations. Major support for this podcast comes from Gordian Sons Outfitters. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's episode of Dr. Dale on Quail. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. Thank you for spending time with us. I think you'll really enjoy this month's topic. It's quail management on wildlife management areas in Texas. And to learn more about that, Dr. Dale visits with Chip Ruthven. He oversees several wildlife management areas in the Texas Panhandle, including the famed Matador WMA. Let's go to Dale now. Thanks, Gary. Uh, it's great to hear from you, and look forward to seeing you again in the studio one of these days. But today, I'm on the fi- I'm on the road up in Matador, Texas, or Matador Wildlife Management Area. And the reason that I selected our speaker for this month is by popular demand. As you know, at the end of each podcast, we say, "Hey, if you know of a great quail story that you'd like to hear someone." Uh, inform us about well please let me know and one of those people uh, whose name was mentioned was somebody from uh, one of the wildlife management areas and so i went to the very top and uh, selected chip ruthman i've known chip for a long time he and i were classmates out of texas tech back during the early 80s and let me say at this point a disclaimer i know we've had a lot of red raiders on this podcast and we'll have some more but it's not anything uh, no bias against the aggies so uh, we will be including some Aggies at a later time. So good morning, Chip. Good morning, Dale. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, it's a little frustrating to be. We're recording this on the 29th of April, and it's still dry. The wind is still blowing. So uh, I know we're all looking for some relief from the drought. And uh, hopefully by the time this airs on May 20th, we will have seen a little bit of that precipitation. Chip, why don't we start out by you telling us your uh, elevator speech. Where are you from? How'd you get to where you're at? And what was the odyssey there in? Uh, well, I've, I grew up in the in the Houston area and, and, and went to Texas Tech where I got my uh, undergraduate degrees, one degree in range management, one degree in uh, wildlife science, uh, worked in the private sector uh, for a while after that. Uh, went back to get my master's degree uh, it was Texas A and M, uh, Texas A and I back then. It's now Texas A and M Kingsville. Got my master's degree in the early '90s and uh, worked in Florida Panhandle for a little while as a technical guidance biologist there, and then uh, moved back to Texas uh, uh, in 1995 and uh, went to work for Parks and Wildlife as an assistant area manager down on the Chaparral WMA in South Texas. And then uh, New Year's Day 2004, I moved up here to the uh, to the Panhandle area and took over as the project leader for the uh, Panhandle Wildlife Management areas, and I'm stationed here on the Matador WMA. But you have several other WMAs kind of under your control, so why don't you tell us where those are at? Uh, I do. I've got, I've got the Gene Howe WMA, which is about 5,300 acres up in uh, Hemp Hill County outside of Canadian. Uh, another little smaller WMA up in Lipscomb County, about 900 acres, called the the Murphy WMA. Uh, got another smaller property uh, up outside of Clarendon near Lila Lake uh, called Taylor Lakes WMA. It's about 525 acres. 
another small tract up in the high plains uh, up outside of uh, Demet uh, called the uh, Demet Playa WMA. It's about 422 acres. And then our newest acquisition up here is the Yoakum Dunes uh, Wildlife Management Area, which is uh, a little over 15,000 acres. Uh, it's out south, uh, south, southwest of Lubbock uh, over uh, near, near Sundown. Well, great, uh, and I look forward to touching on a couple of those, although our main focus today is going to be there uh, at the Matador WMA. I got to step back a few years to 2016, and, and again, that's the year, 15-16, of the quail seasons that all of us, uh, in West Texas at least, aspire to see again. And so I was on a lease out north of Big Spring, and it was a good lease. We were having some incredible numbers, and I generally have my – my old friend Coon Dog Kay from Hollis, Oklahoma, uh, with BFFs forever, and I invited Coon Dog to come down, and I thought, well, he's going to be passing right by the Matador WMA, and I want to ask somebody that I've never asked to go quail hunting, and that was Chip Ruth, and I, I want to step back just a minute right here and encourage y'all. If you have an opportunity and your quail hunting's good, Invite your local TPW biologist uh, because those guys probably don't get to go quail hunting very often. And uh, I know a lot of us wish that uh, we could get more interest in our local or uh, parks and wildlife kind of guy. Well, the only way to predict the future is to uh, create it. So uh, invite those individuals to go along with you. I've had the opportunity to have several of them now, and it's just a great way to introduce them or reintroduce them in most of them's uh, respect reintroduce them to quail hunting and hopefully rekindle that fire that uh, that they might have for uh, quail hunting. But anyway, going back to my lease at, out in Howard County, I called Chip and invited him, and he said, yeah, I, I'll do that. I said, now, Chip, we do have a lease rule that's no pumps or semi-auto, double guns only. And Chip kind of hesitated a minute, and I said, now, if that's an issue, I said, I got a couple of open-unders, and I'd be happy to bring one. And he said, I'll come up with something. Well, when he showed up there at least a couple of weeks later, he showed up with his Fox 410 double barrel that I think he had when he was 13 years old. And then, to my surprise, he also brought a black powder double, uh, 12 gauge double barrel, Petersoli 12 gauge uh, double gun. And I've got video of him dropping quail on the cutter rises with both those guns, but those, with that black powder shotgun. Uh, it made for some pretty special video. Now, Chip, if I ask you about this year, as dry as it's been, I don't want you to bring that muzzleloader because I'm afraid we'll start a range fire. Yeah, that, that's definitely a possibility. <laughs> but, but, but why don't you just, if you will, just reflect back on that hunt in, in 16 and, and, and uh, your, your shotguns and just bring us into the fold of quail hunting a little bit. Oh, like I say, you know, I've 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 quail hunted, you know, uh, a good portion of my life. I've always I enjoyed it. Uh, never had a quail dog. That's one of the things I really enjoyed when I went hunting with you on that trip was uh, uh, watching your betters uh, do all the hard work for us uh, out there on that trip. Uh, but uh, you know, I've been fortunate enough to participate in some of the some of those booms in the past. I remember the night the 1987 boom uh, back in the days. I was down in uh, down. Around 
around Uvalde uh, when we had that boom year and uh, was, was guiding some, some bird hunters uh, back in the day. And then, then got the, the 92 boom was another one that was a really good one, at least in South Texas. And then that one, that 15, 16 type uh, boom, you know, I said, had a great time with you out there uh, uh, on, on your lease. You know, always, it's been a while since I've, I've broken out the, the old black powder mother loading shotgun, but uh, it takes a little bit longer to, to to reload, but it's awful, awful fun to, to shoot birds that way. Well, some special memories uh, for me, and, and I know for you and Coon Dog as well, and I hope that we can relive those again. If not this fall, well, then hopefully uh, when things get a little better, it begins to rain a little bit. Chip, uh, again, you spoke of the several WMAs, which are kind of under your supervision, but the, the crown jewel in that, and really the crown jewel for Parks and Wildlife in terms of quail, I would admit, is the Matador WMA. So why don't you tell us, uh, give us a little description and a little history about the, the WMA there. Uh, from, from my understanding, uh, A.S. Jackson was given the task to find uh, a wildlife management area up here in the Rolling Plains uh, to primarily focus on, on quail management back in the late 50s. Uh, and this property was the property that he wound up uh, recommending. And uh, it was part of the Matador Ranch uh, historically. And I guess back in the late 50s, they were selling off some of their, their holdings over on the far east end of the Matador Ranch. And uh, the state acquired uh, the WMA's 28,183 acres. And uh, they acquired it in uh, 19... 59 and uh it's been in state uh ownership and management uh since then and again uh although we say matador it's, it's not right at matador it's actually about what about seven miles north of paducah in Cobble county and again it's a very popular destination both in state and out of state quail hunters uh could you share with us Chip, kind of what some of the highs and lows have been over the last 10 or 20 years as far as harvest figures from the Matador? You know, like I, said, I came up here in, in 2004, and uh, 2004 was a pretty pretty wet year, and uh, they, we had a, had a decent year up here. I'm looking at the the numbers here. I think the harvest was about 3,400 birds out here in 2004. Uh, and then 2005 was actually a fairly dry year. I think we only had about 15 inches of rain or a little bit more that year uh but but the quail surprisingly did quite well and we had another pretty good uh year in 2005 they harvested about 7500 birds uh since then you know 2006 was awful dry that was one of those big wildfire years where we had lots of wildfires up here during the winter of uh 2006 and and harvest had you know dropped off uh, significantly uh, in those subsequent years uh, after uh, 2006. Uh, and then, of course, the drought uh, started to kick in there. Late 2010 is when that uh, horrible drought uh, set in, and uh, that really hit us hard. Uh, in 2012, uh, they harvested 18 birds out here on the management area in 2012. Uh, numbers slowly started to, to build back up. Uh, 2015 uh, had some pretty favorable precipitation that year. Uh, harvest was back up to about 4,700 birds in 15. 
And then 2016 was the the best year on record out here. Uh, We killed over 10,000 birds out here. Uh, About 10,555 is what the reported harvest was uh, in 2016. And then it's kind of been on a downward trend since then. 17 was down to about 1,300 birds in the last uh, four years or so. We've been, uh, you know, less than 400 birds harvested each year since then. Well, I know that's a disappointment to all of us, uh, you and your staff and all the quail hunters. And uh, Again, the, the decline over the last several years. When, when people ask me, is it just the dry weather? And I respond to them, I hope it's just the dry weather because the weather patterns will change and uh, we'll get back into some rainier weather Again, maybe not this year. I was just looking at the drought monitor this morning, and uh, they were saying that we were had the driest previous six months, so until back to November of last year, I think, on record. So it may be deja vu all over again for 2011, and we all certainly hope that's not the case and we see better time. Chip, if I was to show up on uh, on Matador WMA and um, – mid-December or whenever. The, and for, I want you to talk about when what the availability of quail hunting is on the area, but walk us through a quail hunt up there. And I don't, I'm, when I say walk us through, just just give me an idea. I, uh, I'll have some questions for you, but uh, I can just show up with my dog and my trailer. Uh, on the on the day on the days we're open, you know, hunters, we you know we're we're part of what the a lot of a lot of the older hunters call the old Type Two system, uh, where we have the annual public hunting permit, which is uh, currently it's a forty eight dollar permit that you have to purchase to hunt on 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 a lot of our WMAs uh, for certain species, and quail is one of those species that we offer hunting for under that uh, annual public hunting. Uh, permit and uh the days they days were open uh, uh specifically for quail hunting uh you know hunter we have a self-registration building uh here next to our office uh, hunters come in they can fill in a, a a registration card uh and uh and then they can proceed grab a map we have basic rules and regulations and a map on on the other side of a, of a standard sheet of paper uh, got a little bit bigger maps posted there in the check station itself uh, and then hunters can go out and outside of our restricted areas, which are primarily around uh, uh, our houses and other facilities and stuff like that. And we have a few major winter turkey roost areas out on the WMA that we have uh, no hunting zones around those areas. Uh, hunters can pretty much come out here and, and uh, hunt where they want on the, on the WMA. And then when they're done, they come by. Uh, stop by off at the uh, registration building, fill out the the bottom portion of the registration card, which indicates how long they were out here, how many quail uh, they harvested. Uh, We also asked them to put a a wing off of each bird in a bucket that we have there at our our, uh, check station so we can look at uh, age data on on the birds that are harvested out here uh, as well. And so... uh... If I again, if I showed up there with my dog trailer, I'd say, well, I want to go hunt this northeast. Ever, uh, basically, it's me. If I'm, it's kind of like an Oklahoma land rush, or just whoever's there gets first pick, and then you might uh, be, uh, eat scraps after that, or what? That 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 that's pretty much the, the way it is. I mean, the whole WMA is open. Uh, you can go anywhere on the WMA. 
that a person wanted to go. Uh, you know, all vehicle traffic, uh, you know, including UTVs and stuff like that, are limited to our to our public hunting roads out here. Uh, but we have over 80 miles of roads out here uh, that the hunters can access. But all vehicle traffic has to stay on the roads. But yeah, they can it's just kind of kind of first come first serve. You got a favorite place you want to want to hunt? You know, head out to it. If you know somebody else is there, you may have to move a little further down a, down the road. Okay. And is any road baiting allowed? Uh, like, let's say that I come in, I'm going to be there, oh, um, and you do have some camping facilities there. I know some primitive campsites there. Uh, if I came in there for the week and I thought, well, I want to drain some of these roads, is that permissible or not? Uh, it, it is not permissible. We don't allow any any baiting out here, uh, just uh, just because it's you know we we have no way to regulate it, and that that could run into some conflicts between hunters and stuff like that. So uh, so we do not allow any baiting out here at all. Okay, um, and if you follow any of the quail hunter forums, you know, in in our most recent podcast last month, uh, the topic of aflatoxins and deer corn is really a hot topic. Uh, right now, so again, the uh, the pro- prohibition about baiting just helps to relax whatever kind of uh, concerns you might have had about that, as far as being a, a situation for quail. Chip, again, I, I, I just like you, I, I'm around quail hunters all the time. You, you go into Hickman's Motel there at Ashburnmon or the Beehive over at Albany or wherever you. You're going to go to eat or have lunch, and if you've got an orange cap on, somebody's going to come over and start talking to you about quail hunting and generally lament the uh, availability of numbers of quail over the last five years or so. So I guess what I'm saying is the natives are restless. Uh, Tell us, do y'all have any kind of a feel for that? I mean, is your customer satisfaction? I, I don't know that you gauge that formally, but do you have an idea for what the customer satisfaction has been for the folks that come out and hunt the matador? Uh, you know, in, in, in the good years, it's great. In the bad years, not so much. Uh, and uh, and then we, I do try and visit with a lot of our hunters. I'll I'll spend a lot of time out on the area, and I'll stop and 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 visit with our hunters. And uh, we've got you know we've got a lot of folks that have been coming out here for twenty thirty years. Uh, we get a lot of folks from from out of state, all throughout the South, but we get folks from you know the Midwest, you know uh, Illinois, Minnesota, places like that that come down here quail hunting, and uh, you know most of them are content. You know, surprisingly, even if they can get into maybe only three or four cubbies a day, most of them are content with that, and most of them. The, the dog work's probably more important to them than anything else. Uh, they just want to see the see the dog the dogs work. Um, but in these these uh, you know trying years that we've been having these last few you know few years, uh, you know it's 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 been disappointing. And uh, I know that'll that will change at some point in time. I just hope it's sooner rather than later. Amen to that. Um, okay, so you. Uh, before I get into the harvest numbers, let me ask you if you have a feel. If there were if there were a thousand hunters that hunted there last year, do you have an idea of are twenty percent of them non residents or eighty percent of them, or do you have a feel for that? 
Uh, you know, we, we do collect, you know, looking at, at, uh, you know, quail per hunter per day. And it, it's, it's, it's hard to tell, you know, we, of course, you know, on the, on the, on the cars, when the hunters check out, they put down whether they killed any quail or, or not. And, you know, last year there were a lot of them didn't kill any quail. And I'll run into some folks that didn't even see a quail when they're out here. But then again, I'll run into folks that may have seen three, four, uh, five coveys in a day. Uh, but, uh, you know, as far as harvest goes, you know, it's, it's, you know, even, even in the best years in 2016, uh, the, the, the average harvest per hunter day was just under four birds per hunter day. Uh, but most years it's going to average well less than a bird per hunter day, even on average years uh, from a harvest standpoint. And that's a difficult statistic for me to swallow because, I mean, if I was going out and making those trips and so forth, and I do love my dogs, you know that, and, and maybe I would uh, be satisfied with that. But it seems like a, it doesn't take a whole lot to keep them satisfied, and sometimes I guess that's not a bad not a bad deal. But I know that, uh, and I want us to recall that average of four birds in 2016 as we talk a little bit more about harvest. Jim, are there any guy? How do y'all handle harvest? I mean, is in a good year versus bad? Year? I mean, we know right now it's probably not going to be a great year in two thousand and twenty-two. Uh, is the harvest always bag limit? Always the same, or how do y'all regulate harvest? It, uh, it is. I mean, the the har uh, you know harp the. We, we adhere to the state bag limits uh, out here, and uh, and we only hunt within the uh, uh, the designated quail season. Uh, you know, access is unlimited, and uh, you know, unfortunately, we have to send our recommendations in for the previous year months in advance of of when the season uh, starts, and those those dates get published well in advance before the season starts, or before we may have a really good uh, idea of what our quail numbers uh, are going to be. Uh, but uh, but harvest seems to, and, and, and hunting pressure seems to be self regulating. I mean, it. Bad years when we don't have any birds, you know, we may get a few folks, you know, will show up opening weekend. You get that opening weekend uh, group that comes out no matter what. Uh, if the birds aren't here, they don't come back. The, the word gets out. We don't have any birds. We get very few hunters. And thus, we have very, very little pressure and very little harvest in those years. And again, in the in the great years, uh, uh, you know, we get a lot of, uh, uh, hunters out here may have, you know, high harvest, but we have plenty of birds to, to support that, um, harvest level. Uh, and we try and, uh, to, just because we do have unlimited access out here, uh, we do, you know, we open opening day of quail season. Usually we'll hunt for the first week or so of the season. Uh, then we'll have a couple of deer hunts where only the deer hunters are on the WMA. So I, I tend to block those to where give the birds a, a couple weeks of rest. We'll open back up for quail hunting, run a few more of our deer hunts in early to mid-December, uh, again, to kind of give those birds a little bit of a break. And then we we shut our quail hunting down here uh, on uh, January 31st. So we do not hunt into February. Uh, I figure the birds that have made it to the end of the end of January, they're, they're our primary brood stock for that next year. So we, uh, we stop hunting on January 31st. All right, let me ask you a question, and I ain't, I ain't trying to put you in a tough spot, but 
uh, again, during the, during the hard times, when we've been in hard times again in West Texas for the last three years anyway, do you support the – what do you think about the idea of uh, shortening the quail season? I mean, I mean, you know, there's been a lot of talk about that and the bag limits, but, uh, I mean, when you look at, you know, very, very few hunters even come remotely close to, to, to harvesting a limited, limited limit of birds in a day, you know, good years like 2016, there were, there were probably several folks that, uh, that did that. Uh, but, uh, again, we see it to be, it's, it's, it seems to be fairly self-regulating, uh, in itself when there aren't any birds, they don't get the, the, the pressure. And, uh, and I really don't think the bag limits of the season length in many cases, uh, or can be that detrimental. I mean, we went from, you know, 18 birds being harvested out here in 2012 to over 10,000, uh, in, you know, four years later. Uh, so even, even in the bad years, I think you still have, even with, uh, the, the bag limits, the way they are, uh, and the season limit, you still have those, those birds persisting from, uh, from year to year. And, uh, those are the ones who this isn't their first rodeo. They know how to find that heaviest brush or whatever. So again, I guess you could argue certainly survival of the fittest. And, and again, the numbers that y'all had, Again, from 18 to 10,000 plus, that's pretty phenomenal. Uh, we refer to that in the quail world as uh, eruptant, eruptions. I'm sorry, I-R-R-U-P-T-I-O-N-S, or more commonly called booms and busts. And if you've got any mar- money in the stock market right now, you're very familiar with booms and busts. And I hope it comes back quickly, too. Uh, I remember hearing one of your former colleagues and uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Dr. Marcus Peterson, who used to work for Parks and Wildlife, when we get into the arguments about bag limits and season length, uh, he said in, in order to make any difference, any market difference in the number of quail that were harvested, you'd have to drop the bag limit from 15 down to four. And, of course, I, th- I think everybody would throw their hands up and throw, throw darts at whoever uh, if that was the case. But it is, in his words, a draconian cut uh, is what it would take to really have any measurable impact on the harvest uh, by limiting the bag limit. Chip, what do you do as far as, and I want to first pat you on the back. Uh, I've been aware of the Matador WMA for a long time, and and I I will just say prior to your tenure there, it was often overgrazed. But uh, what what axe plow, cow fire kinds of things do you have and do you use with the idea of quail in mind? Uh, we use pretty much everything in, in our toolbox. Uh, you know, when I'm, I came up here in 2004, uh, you know, brush cover was an issue for us, especially from, a from a quail standpoint with, uh, mesquite probably, you know, being one of the, uh, the primary woody plants, uh, that we needed to do some work on. And, uh, you know, we've been fortunate enough to get, get, get funding, uh, to do a lot of uh, habitat work out here. Uh, since 2004, we've probably sprayed over 15,000 acres of mesquite out here. Uh, and, uh, 
prickly pear in some areas has has been an issue. You know, I got to get, get a lot of quail hunters complaining about these these solid stands of that plains type prickly pear, that low growing prickly pear, which we have in certain habitat types, and we've been able to use uh, combinations of prescribed fire and chemical treatments to suppress uh, some of that prickly pear in areas where it was a uh, was a problem. Uh, we've done some work uh, in the riparian corridors with salt cedar, which is an issue along the, the, the Middle Pease River. Uh, active prescribed burning program uh, as well, which is one of our primary tools to deal with the red berry juniper, which can be a problem in, in some of our habitat types. And uh, being a, a re-sprouter, unfortunately, it's not like the ash juniper, the eastern red cedar. Uh, you know, it's kind of a continual uh, uh, issue trying to manage that uh, redberry juniper. Uh, and then we use we use livestock grazing as a habitat management tool as well. Uh, we uh, when I came up here, we uh, we the, the area had been deferred for uh, a few years. Uh, we came back with an, an, an extremely light stocking rate. Uh, have gradually built that up. We're still very conservatively stocked and then we've incorporated into a, a rotational uh, a grazing system uh, uh, to basically you know enhance the overall habitat uh, for quail and all grassland wildlife uh, for that matter of fact but you know we've got we've got 11 primary uh, pastures out here on the WMA at any given time. There's only cattle in three of those pastures at any given time. And uh, they're constantly being rotated uh, uh, through those pastures. And like I say, we use a, uh, a conservative stocking rate. So when we get into a, a drought type uh, situation like we're in right now, uh, we've already pretty much have got that, that uh, uh, drought uh, plan already figured into our grazing plan to start out with. Would you say then that uh, on a scale from one to ten, with with cows being a terrible practice, or men being they are the the best practice, where would you say your ideas, your goals for cattle grazing fall along that continuum? Uh, I mean, you know, for you or, or how do you? Uh, you know, I, you know, I, I put great, you know, cattle grazing up there at the top. You know, uh, uh, you know, it's it's the primary land use uh, in 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 most of the state, especially here in the western part of the state, and uh, that's what private landowners are depending on for a lot of their income. So it's 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 uh, you know, it's a critical management tool, and like I say, using a little bit more moderate stocking rate. Incorporating rotational grazing in there, I think, is really critical uh, to managing uh, the habitats out there for quail and all grassland wildlife. And uh, uh, it's right now, it's it's becoming one of our, you know, it and prescribed fire are probably becoming two of our more uh, important habitat management tools right now uh, in the current state that we're in. Well, we've had a podcast before with Mr. Rick Snipes down there south of you at Astromont, and uh, Rick has a saying that, uh, and I'll paraphrase this, but he'll say, if there are 20 things that you can do for quail habitat, give me brush management and grazing management, you can have the other 18. So, <laughs> right. The, the significance of both of those, and, and again, whether we're talking about, oh, let's talk about brush management just a minute. And you and I have both dealt with ranchers and uh, semi-arid rangelands all of our lives. And 
And again, that we recognize that that brush control can be a positive or negative, largely on how it's applied. So uh, mechanical means with a grow, with a grubber or an excavator can be excellent habitat management for tools. But I've also served on, over the last 25 years, served on various technical committees with Parks and Wildlife and currently serve on the Upland Game Bird Advisory Committee. And one of the things that really was a glass of cold water in my face was when we were talking about some kind of habitat project that y'all might have planned for the Matador, you might have planned for the Shep down there at Catula. Uh, and, and it was, for example, a $500,000 project, but about half of that was for archeological clearance. Talk to us about that. Uh, yeah, being you know a federally funded project, uh, we have to adhere to, to a certain uh, archaeological uh, uh, survey. Uh, uh, I wouldn't say necessarily restrictions, but requirements, uh, basically to preserve to preserve archaeological sti- uh, sites uh, and just even historical sites too uh, throughout the state. Uh, so you know any any kind of soil disturbance project uh, requires archaeological clearance. Uh, we've gotten to the point now we have an in-house archaeologist who can actually come out and and conduct those uh, uh, surveys uh, for us. Uh, you know practices like like. Uh, 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 chemical applications where you're not having any soil disturbance, you don't have to worry about uh, the archaeological clearance. It's just on soil disturbing activities uh, like, say, grubbing or, or, or root plowing or chaining or, or something like that. Uh, and it may take a little bit longer time uh, to get those archaeological surveys done. Uh, you know, if we do find, you know, archaeological sites out here, we try to we avoid and protect those uh, when we do do our, our, uh, our habitat management uh, operations uh, and a lot of times we tend to we tend to focus a lot of our, our our habitat work that has soil disturbance on sites that have already been previously uh, disturbed uh, which makes that clearance process a little bit uh, easy easier uh, you know a lot of this country up here had been chained in the past back in the 40s and 50s uh, you get down in South Texas a lot of that country had been root plowed uh, so the soil disturbance activity had already occurred uh, so we, a lot of times we try and focus our activities on those areas, which, like I say, makes the process a little bit easier to get it cleared from an archaeological standpoint. Okay. Thanks for clearing that up. And let me digress just a, a minute to say that a chip is, is one of our best field botanists in uh, the state. And uh, I put him right up there with some of, some of our heroes, mine and Chip's heroes. I know like Steve Nelly, uh, Ricky Lee. And so uh, it's always good to have a good botanist. And I will say this, anytime you can arrange as a landowner, as as a student of quail, that you can arrange to spend a couple of hours with a good botanist and uh, let them begin to introduce you to the saga uh, that's unfolding on your back 40 and the the words therein are the names of plants. So that's my exhortation to to try 50 plants. And if you learn 50 plants, you'll be in the top 1% of the people. So I encourage you to be a student. And I guess also, Chip, again, we were both out at Texas Tech. We, we kind of had training along that, what I'll call that range wide. We could have fallen on either side of the fence. We'd probably have a better appreciation for livestock grazing. And some people that didn't come out of that range and wildlife type training 
can you reflect back on a couple of your professors there at Texas Tech and say he or she really had an influence on me? Well, there was there was a a bunch there uh, that that impacted me. You know, uh, Mr. John Hunter. I mean, he was you know he taught a lot of the introductory wildlife courses. Uh, and actually, I think the first wildlife course I took there was uh, from Dr. Fred Bryant uh, uh, there, who uh, uh, was, I think he was uh, at the beginning of his career uh, back there at uh, uh, Texas Tech. Uh, from, a, from a plant ID standpoint, it was Dr. Russ Pettit. Uh, you know, he taught range plants. You know, he was a, a mentor of mine. Uh, and, and Carlton Britton was another one uh, who was a mentor of mine who I, I learned a lot from at took uh, rangeland planning and analysis and some other courses from him and uh, and also uh, doc, dr bill Dahl too as well he taught a lot of the range management courses there and uh he was one of my mentors as well there at, at texas tech and again all those familiar names Abe, um i i think you might agree that that we caught texas tech the range wildlife department at, at the zenith of its career. Now, I know they're building back and looking good again these days, we, just like the quail population. We hope that they rebuild and, and can and say, Rollins said that 1981 was the zenith, but we think it's 2023, and I'm to them. I hope they do. But yeah, yeah, and like yeah. I, I, yeah, I just want to also mention Dr. Ron Sosby as well. He's another one of my mentors that uh, uh, that taught me a lot there uh, at, at Texas Tech, especially for in, in the, from the range management and ecology standpoint. Okay, let's bring us back to the Matador WMA and, and question about what what do you do with quail in mind? Do y'all do annual surveys, Tim? We do. We do. We've got uh, four ten-mile quail routes here on the WMA. Uh, we run uh, uh, spring whistle counts uh, on all four of those uh, survey routes. Typically, three to four. Uh, uh, surveys uh each spring we'll start here probably week after next is when we'll start our our whistle count uh, surveys uh we do uh the same routes uh we do uh roadside uh surveys in the late summer uh august september we usually do four replications of, of roadside surveys and then we have 13 uh point count uh, stations out here uh, that we do uh, fall covey call counts from uh, in October. And uh, we have participated in the Texas Quail Index uh, program out here. And even though it's uh, uh, we're still not collecting a lot of that data statewide, we're still continuing to, to monitor the, the uh, uh, Texas Quail Index uh, route uh, out here on the Matador WMA. Well, we certainly applaud you for that, and uh, we just finished with session one of our 2022 Quail Masters class, and I know uh, one of your staff, new staff, Hunter Hopkins, is a part of that, and we're proud to have him. But if you're interested as a landowner in what's involved with the Texas Quail Index, well, just Google that phrase, Texas Quail Index. It'll take you to a handbook and a series of uh, on-site demonstrations that you can do. And I always, uh, when I'm speaking about that, I'll remind people that the, the old saying that the best fertilizer is the footprint of the farmer. So the more you can be involved and, and be aware and appreciate what's going on out there on the back 40, the better student of quail you may become. Chip, as a quail hunter, I, I, it costs me $7.50 every year to hunt quail for uh, a game bird stamp. 
and I don't know, I think last year, I want to say there was probably around 70,000 quail hunters, which is way down from its heyday. But our question is, there's a pot of money down there at the Upper Bird Advisory Committee, the Upper Game Bird Stamp. As a manager of a WMA, are you eligible and are you able to tap into some of that? Uh, we are, all of our WMAs are eligible to tap into that that Upland Game Bird Stamp uh, money for for some funding, and uh, we have gotten funding uh, here from the uh, the Game Bird Stamp fund uh for for habitat work and uh we can actually use that since it's state funding we can use that to match with Pittman robertson funds which is federal funding and a three-to-one match to actually increase the magnitude uh of of that money uh and uh, it's primarily directed to uh direct habitat management work uh, on our WMAs. And uh, we also have been fortunate enough, you know, not only here at the Matador WMA, but on other WMAs, we have uh, a lot of NGOs that support us, like uh, National Wild Turkey Federation, uh, Quail Forever, Mule Deer Foundation, Dow Safari Club, that again, give us donations for habitat work, and we can match those with Pittman-Robertson funds uh, to just to make that uh, those dollars go even further. And it's all it's all directed directly toward habitat management uh, on our WMAs. And for those of you on the podcast that aren't familiar with that phrase, Pittman Robertson funds, or sometimes just referred to as PR funds, that's from an it started in uh, I want to say 1937, a congressional act that levied a uh, a tax on sporting goods and ammunition of approximately 11 percent, and that money then uh, is is um, apportioned back to the states and makes up the backbone of many of the wildlife agencies' uh, funding. So uh, it's, it's an important deal. And uh, just on that front, uh, there's a new act or a, a new uh, law possibly pending. The support is being engendered for it right now. It's called RAWA, R-A-W-A, Recovering American Wildlife Act. So uh, we may have somebody, as we get a little closer to that, uh, talk about what the implications would that, that that would bring to the state of Texas for wildlife management. But from what I know about it at this point in time, it would be a huge contribution. Chip, you want to add anything to that? No, yeah, it would. It, if, if it does pass, it'll bring in a lot of funding uh, to Texas uh, directly for uh, wildlife management and conservation here in the state. Hopefully, hopefully, hopefully it will it will pass here soon. Yeah, so be watching uh, your social media or your news outlets, uh, Equal Newsletter or whatever, and we'll be having more information on that. But we encourage you to find out more about it, and if you support it, we'll talk to your elected officials uh, to gain their support. Because as I understand right now, it has broad bipartisan support. So again, we're somewhat optimistic that that will uh, will pass. Jeff, let's talk about research there at the Matador and or the other WMAs that you oversee. Are, are there or are there ongoing projects? Is there a history of research projects? Talk to us about that. Uh, you know, we, you know, we, the, the Matador in particular is primarily a research and demonstration site. So uh, we try and, you know, do as much research as we can. We and, and encourage universities which do most of our research to uh, to utilize our WMAs as as study sites. Uh 
Texas Tech has done quite a bit of research out here, especially uh, from a wild turkey standpoint. Uh, they did several years of, of multiple research projects in the early 2000s out here uh, on wild turkey, just uh, primarily looking at overall uh, ecology. Uh, we have had some uh, uh, some quail uh, work that, that, that has been done out here uh, through Texas Tech. Dr. Brad Dabbert, one of his students, looked at our patch burning and grazing program that we are experimenting with here in a couple of our smaller pastures uh, here on the WMA. Uh, and uh, looking at uh, you know, radio collared birds and uh, looking at the effects of it. it was not just quail, it was grassland birds in general, but uh, it was primarily focused on quail. And uh, uh, we've got right now, we've got uh, Playa Lakes Joint Venture. Uh, we're doing some research through them, looking at our overall brush management uh, operations out here, particularly about there and why we'd want to focus grazing on some particular points. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, the patch burning grazing, like I say, it's, it's basically, it's, it's essentially mimicking the, the, the natural process that would have happened prior to European settlement when you had lightning strike fires that burned across the landscape, and then you had bison, which would focus on those, those burned areas after they began to green up in the spring. And uh, so we, and similar to the work they did it, or are still doing at OSU, uh, you know, we've got a pasture that's, that's been carved up into about 45 acre plots and we'll typically burn a couple plots uh, a year uh, in within that pasture. And that next spring, the cattle will tend to focus their uh, their grazing on that that fresh new regrowth. While the other plots uh, that were not burned, they tend to get a chance to time to rest and recover. Uh, and, uh, and then the next year you burn a different set of plots. So the plots that were burned the year before that got the heavy, heavy grazing pressure, they start to get that rest period, uh, to help, uh, you know, overall, uh, rangeland improvement. And like I said, I'm really fascinated. I recommend it to, to people, uh, you can see more about what patch burn grazing involves if you'll go to our website, quailresearch.org, and look for the patch burn grazing webisode. So check that out as, as you have interest in that. Um, okay, Chip, I want to take you back in time. I want to say 1995, I could be off. I was serving on the Texas Quail State Technical Committee, I think was what it was referred to back then. And we came up with a publication, and I don't have it here in front of me, but it, I think it may have been called the Texas Quail Plan. But therein, there were three consensus closing points. One of those was to get more involved with these joint ventures, which are a way to leverage your dollars. But as I recall, number two was was to make crown jewels for Parks and Wildlife for quail out of their DMAs. I'll proceed that by saying, I mean, for those of us who have been around the wildlife circles a long time in Texas, if you'd asked somebody 20 years ago, what's the crown jewel of the Parks and Wildlife WMAs, I would submit to you that they'd probably say the Curve Wildlife Management Area. Now, you've worked on two, certainly the, the SHAP and the uh, Matador that could be mentioned for that idea today. But if I was, if I was your boss, if I was the Parks and Wildlife Commission, and I said, Chip, we're getting tired of hearing these quail hunters, Bella, about four quail numbers. We want you to turn the Matador WMA into the best it can be for Bible quail and quail hunting. What would you do? Uh, I'd, I'd pretty much just continue what we've been doing for the last, uh, you know, 15 to, to 20 years uh we've uh you know con continue to, to you know utilize you know uh livestock grazing prescribed fire uh to enhance overall habitats uh for quail uh and all grassland wildlife for that matter of fact but uh uh you know i, I think you know from a brush management standpoint we're, we're pretty close to where we need to be so uh you know from things that when we used uh chemical applications or or any kind of mechanical treatments i think we're uh we're pretty much where we need to be or pretty close to it in that regard uh so i would just continue to use livestock grazing and prescribed fire uh, to continue to improve and maintain uh, uh, the grasslands that we're trying to restore here on the uh, on the Matador WMA. 
So follow Justin Trail, one of my former presidents for the Research Foundation. His idea of you keep your land in as good a condition as you can, so when it does rain, you're able to, to capitalize on that uh, to the best you can. Chip, you've used the phrase uh, grassland birds, and when you say quail and other wildlife, give us an idea of some of those grassland birds that you're referring to. Some of the uh, you know things like dick sissels, uh, cast and sparrows uh, is another one. Meadowlarks is a, is is another one that, uh, uh, that 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 can be fairly common uh, in this part of the state. You know, typically it's 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 songbirds that that rely on those grassland habitats, whether it's short grass prairie uh, or tall grass prairie, uh, as as part of their li- their life cycle. Uh, they they need that uh, grassland prairie type environment. Uh, uh, to nest in and uh, to to raise their their broods in, uh, and, and quail is you know particularly bob white quail, but even scale quail too, are are you know a couple of those species that that are in that that suite of grassland species that are uh, benefiting from our our grassland restoration efforts on all of our WMAs in the state, not just here at the Matador WMA. And I know you've sat in meetings, as have I, where they'll show the the abundant trends of birds like dick thistles, grasshopper sparrows, some of those species you've talked about over the last 30 to 40 years, and they have that up against the backdrop of the demise of the Bob White, the decline of the Bob White over a period, and it's it's parallel graphs. I mean, uh, basically the take-home message there is that the grassland system is in peril and needs our attention, and I and I think, and, and you, you've often, listeners have often heard me refer to Bob White as the canary of the prairie, which is as Bob Whites are an umbrella species. If we manage property for Bob Whites, we're going to benefit a whole host of these grassland birds, and there's never going to be a hunting season on those grassland birds. So they're they're riding on the charismatic coattails of the Bob White, and that's it's one of the premises that we work on. Chip, anything, I'm going to get into a couple other items, but they're non-quail related. So anything else I've missed that you want to discuss about the quail efforts there or or the other WMAs? I know the Gene Howe, we hadn't talked about it, but I know it's a popular destination. Uh, yeah, Gene, Gene Howe is a popular destination, a little bit different habitat type up there at the Gene Howe. Uh, it's got the, the, north, the north end of the WMA is, is rolling sand hills, so it's uh, dominated primarily by, by tall grass and sand sagebrush. And then you've got the, the, the river bottoms of the, uh, the Canadian River, which runs along the south side of the, uh, uh, the WMA, which is primarily tall grass, but you get a lot of timber in there. Uh, cottonwoods and such like that, which are you know good good roosting trees for our our wild turkey population, but uh, uh, they can uh, provide some some good quail hunting uh, up there as well uh, at the at the Gene Howe. Okay, um, Chip, are, are, is the Matador or the Gene Howe is it available if somebody's you know and let's say the Audubon group from Dallas wants to schedule a tour out there. Are those kind of tours, or the Quail Masters, are those kind of tours available? And if so, who does one contact to proceed? They are. They can. They they can contact you know the WMA office if if, if one of those groups wanted to set up a, a specific tour uh, for them. Uh, they just need to to contact uh, uh, 
uh, one of our offices and talk to one of our biologists at the office, and we'd be more than happy to uh, to set up a specific time and and uh, have those groups come out and and give them a a, a tour uh, of the WMA, whether it's you know whether they're bird watchers or whatever the case may be. I mean, we do uh, we do host uh, uh, field uh, uh, field days uh, periodically. We have one coming up uh, the latter part of May here on the Matador WMA. It's a brush management uh, uh, field day on on May 27th, and uh, uh, but yeah, they can just contact any one of our offices, and, uh, and our WMAs are typically open every day of the year. Uh, so if someone wanted to come out and bird watch, as long as they had the appropriate uh, permit, either the annual public hunting permit or a limited use permit, which only costs $12, which is for folks engaged in non-consumptive activities like bird watching or wildlife photography, uh, they can come in here, sign in our registration building and go out and bird watch. Uh, essentially the only, the only time the WMA is typically closed down is when we're running some of our special permits permit hunts like our, our deer hunts is when the WMA is, is shut down except for those uh, uh, specific hunters. Okay. I'm going to close the podcast by referencing a couple of other efforts been involved with. And the first one being your ideas and your research on rattlesnakes, which I think started down out down at the SHAP WMA. But uh, Talk to us a little bit about rattlesnake research and your perspectives on rattlesnakes. Uh, I, I did quite a bit of research when I was down at Chaparral WMA uh, on uh, on Western Dimeback rattlesnakes uh, using uh, we'd uh, actually conduct surgeries, put radio insert radio transmitters into the abdominal cavity of, of uh, Dimeback rattlesnakes, uh, and then I was primarily the one that was out uh, doing the radio telemetry out in the field. And uh, uh, found out that people people walk by within inches of a lot more rattlesnakes than they probably realize they do. Uh, they uh, being a very cryptic species, uh, last thing they want to do is give themselves away to uh, to human or any other uh, potential predator, uh, which they consider humans a predator essentially. Uh, but. Uh, they uh, a lot of times they're coiled up at the edge of say of a mesquite tree and some tall grass and they're not about to move. Uh, I've, when I finally find that rattlesnake when I'm looking for him, I know where he is because the radio signal is telling me where he is, and it may take me a while to finally zoom in on that pattern of that snake, and he only may be six inches off the toe of my boot. Uh, I've even I've even stepped on rattlesnakes while I was doing my telemetry. Never had one try and bite me uh some of them never even moved when i stepped on them the other ones they took off and wanted to get a get away from me uh and uh did find out that you know home ranges were fairly small down there in south texas uh, i know rattlesnakes are encountered year round down there because of the warmer temperatures however all the rattlesnakes i followed down there at the chaparral wildlife management area actually hibernated for uh several weeks during the peak of the winter uh, and they primarily utilized pack rat pack rat middens uh, uh for for denning sites uh down there 
Uh, did some similar studies up here at the, at the Matador WMA, found out uh, the rattlesnakes had quite a bit larger home range up here. I mean, down in South Texas, home range is probably uh, maybe only 50 or 60 acres uh, for a diamondback rattlesnake was their home range. We're up here uh, in North Texas where they have more communal dens that most folks associate with rattlesnakes. Uh, their home range could be, you know, a couple hundred acres uh, or more. And, uh, uh, they would typically go back to the to the same den year after year where you had multiple s- snakes in a den where down in South Texas you may only had one or two snakes in a given pack rat midden uh, down there in South Texas. But it was interesting to look at the same species, western diamondback rattlesnake from the South Texas brush country up here to the rolling plains that they did. They did act a little bit different uh, as far as movements and activity patterns and stuff like that. Just as an aside, in 2016, uh, we had seven of our radio collar birds there at the ranch killed and consumed by rattlesnakes. Now, this makes an interesting deal because uh, you're going out to find that collar. You've got a more time signal on it. Beep, beep, beep. So you know something's happened to the bird or lost its collar. So you follow that up. And just as you said, one day I was up there in 2009 with one of the interns. And he said, I've got a mortality, but I can't find it. It's in some tall Johnson grass. And I said, well, I'll go with you in the morning. And so oftentimes you take the uh, telemetry receiver, you take the antenna off of the of the, of the Yagi antenna, and you use it more or less like a stethoscope to where you're kind of being able to hone in. And so Jeremy and I were both looking in that clump of Johnson grass about the size of a pickup truck. And as you said, we'd walk all through it, no rattles. And uh, finally, I saw him right at the edge of my boat, coiled up about the size of a pretty good size uh, cow patty. And we drug him out and got some photos of him. But but like I said, uh, most of the time, or many times, certainly I can say most, many of the times uh, they don't rattle. And, and just again, as an aside, some people will say that's because the feral pigs that have invaded uh, this country over the last 40 years and, and they've eaten all the rattlesnakes that rattled. Any thoughts on that? Uh, I, 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 I really don't think that has any, any effect on them. I mean, most, most of the snakes I encountered in the, in the field, very few, only time a rattlesnake would rattle at me is if he was in the open, moving in the open, realized that I had seen him, they would typically get into defensive uh, posture and, and rattle at me. Uh, but other than that, they're going to remain as motionless as possible, rely on their camouflage to keep them out of sight. And then the last thing they're going to do uh, is rattle. So I don't, yeah, I don't think the feral hogs are having any effect on on rattlesnakes on whether they, they, they rattle or not. Typically, they do not rattle. Uh, only when they feel threatened are they going to going to rattle. Okay, an urban internet legend debunked. So I appreciate your comments on that. <laughs> research ranch, we're a little bass backwards. Uh, we don't kill rattlesnakes unless they're within 200 yards of our headquarters or 200 yards of what we call the pavilion, up where we have events at. The rest of the time, we just move on, leave them as they are, and uh, go on because, and I think Chip would probably agree, they're just one more component of the ecosystem out there. And so, uh, being able to learn and appreciate their role in it is uh, what we as wildlife scientists are supposed to be doing. 
Uh, Chip, one last thing I want to talk to you, and that's about uh, salt cedar and your salt cedar control efforts and the role that y'all have played in some bigger efforts relative to controlling a phreatophyte. Now, I had that term on my doctoral exam. A phreatophyte is a water-loving plant. So talk to us, and if you've been, if you've gone up to the Panhandle along those river drainages, you've seen salt cedar. Talk to yeah. us about your perspective on that and what your involvement's been. Yeah, salt cedar, you know, is is, is native to Eurasia and was brought over in the 1800s uh, or approximate time period. You know, primarily as a to, to for uh, to address soil erosion uh, in many cases, but like a lot of them, a lot, a lot a lot of introduced species we brought over here with good intentions, and they turned out to be be huge problems. And salt cedar is one of them, uh, primarily in the western half of Texas, and then throughout a lot of the Intermountain West, it's a problem on the riparian areas. Uh, and it is a problem here on the Matador WM here along the on the Middle Keys River, uh, a lot of the other river systems in here, the Canadian, Brazos, Colorado River systems, even the Rio Grande River system. It is an issue, uh, and uh, there wasn't uh, a really in a good effective way to, uh, to to control it other than a mechanical uh, removal. They have developed some herbicides for it, which we have used. However, uh, it's still a fairly a fairly expensive way to treat salt cedar. Uh, and then several years ago, the USDA uh, started experimenting with the salt cedar leaf beetle, which was a native beetle to Eurasia that basically predated on salt cedar, ate the leaves on salt cedar, and it kept salt cedar in check in its native Eurasia. Well, that beetle was not here in the United States, so they started to experiment with the beetle, uh, made sure that the beetle didn't eat anything else other than salt cedar, which it didn't. It only ate salt cedar or closely related, a couple other closely related species to salt cedar. Uh, you know, it didn't affect any of our native uh, plants and trees or fruit trees. It didn't didn't affect them. Uh, they finally got permission to start releasing uh, salt cedar leaf beetles as a biological control for salt cedar. Uh, back around 2004, we served as one of, here at the Matador, we served as one of the Release sites uh, for the salt cedar uh, leaf beetle, uh, and after and after a few years, actually AgriLife Extension kind of uh, took over uh, the release program and uh, were promoting the program. Uh, released beetles here, they they. Apparently persisted, but we didn't see any significant defoliation. Uh, they've released beetles at multiple other sites throughout the Panhandle and all the way down to the Rio Grande. Uh, and then around 2012, uh, some environmental factors came together in just the right condition uh, where salt cedar leaf beetle populations exploded, and they were defoliating hundreds and thousands of acres of salt cedar all over the panhandle and, and down toward uh, the Rio Grande and the Big Bend country. Uh, had great defoliation, multiple defoliations by those beetles would actually start inducing uh, some mortality uh, into the salt cedar trees. Uh, had great defoliation in 2012 and 2013 was another great year. Had a lot of defoliation uh, from the salt cedar leaf beetles. And in Brent, 2014, numbers dropped off dramatically, and they seem to have kind of gone off the radar screen for the most part. We have not seen little defoliation since then. I assume the beetles are still out there in, in some level or, or another, and, and hopefully the right environmental conditions will click together uh, 
so those number their numbers can expand and they can continue to defoliate uh, uh, those salt cedars because once they defoliate, you know, get, get rid of the salt cedar, then a lot of that native uh, woody vegetation, uh, black willow and stuff like that that's native to our riparian areas, cottonwood trees and stuff like that. Uh, can start to come back. And, uh, and we've also used mechanical removal in our riparian areas of salt cedar as well, and it can it can be fairly effective. And uh, just need to follow that up with some prescribed fire to keep those uh, those saplings from coming back in. But uh, it's, it's, it's an issue, and, and uh, uh, it's kind of like feral hog. It's one of those things I wish you could completely get rid of, but uh, very likely you will not be able to completely get rid of it. But hopefully we can, can manage it manage it uh on into the future well it's it's certainly an issue as are the feral hogs and especially in our riparian issue areas and our riparian issue our riparian areas are typically the jewels of anybody's uh, particular habitat so uh, yeah good luck on that appreciate y'all's involvement and effort with that uh, winding it down chip is there anything that we failed to, to mention that might be of interest to our listeners uh, no, I, I say, uh, you know, just all I can say is pray for rain right now. We're in dire need of it up here. You know, actually, uh, some parts of the Panhandle, I was up at the Gene Howe yesterday, and they've actually caught a little rain here over the last couple months, and they're starting to, they, they don't look too bad. They've actually got a little green coming on up in that country, but down here, we're in, uh, we're in pretty, pretty dire straits. But, uh, yeah, grassland restoration to the, to the benefit of all grassland wildlife, including bobwhite quail, uh, you know, is one of our primary primary focuses on all of our WMAs uh in in the state. Uh uh and uh where you know grassland and savannah habitats dominated historically and uh uh we will continue to to to, to, to march onward uh to the benefit of uh quail and all grassland wildlife in our work. Well we appreciate your appreciate your efforts and uh, certainly appreciate what's uh, going on in the history of the Matador WMA and the other WMAs up there in the panhandle. And Chip, I'm going to invite you back on a black powder quail hunt because that so fascinated me, that better solely black powder gun, that I came home and got to looking on Gun Broker and sure enough, bought me one. Uh, I haven't shot it yet. That's been almost three years ago, uh, three years ago, and I haven't shot it yet. And I'm not going to shoot it right now just because I'm afraid it's, as windy as it's been, it'd start a fire here at San Angelo that would come on up there to you at the Matador <laughs> and we wouldn't have the black powder gun. But uh, again, folks, uh, as you're quail hunting, if you have the opportunity, please remember to invite somebody within PPW or whoever your respective uh, biology is, NRCS or whatever, and regenerate that culture for uh, quail hunting that uh, that they might have put by the wayside uh, for some other species here over the last 15, 20 years. Uh, Gary, that's concludes our effort up here uh send rain uh we look forward to it and we'll look forward to visiting with y'all next month thank you so much dr dale and thank you chip for that wonderful information about quail management and wildlife management in general on the wmas in the panhandle of texas if you'd like more information about the matador wma go to the website to the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department at tpwd.texas.gov. If you'd like more information from the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, go to its website at quailresearch.org. 
There you'll find past episodes of the Dr. Dale on Quail podcast, as well as information from the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. Thank you for spending time with us today. Until next time. Support from Gordian Sons Outfitters makes Dr. Dale on Quail possible. Gordian Sons, the finest hunting and fly fishing shop to be found. Find out more at GordianSons.com.